Are you looking to sharpen your command and leadership skills? The 2024 Blue Card Hazard Zone Conference is coming back to the Sharonville Convention Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, September 30th through October 4th. Immerse yourself in five days of targeted command education and leadership training at the 2024 Blue Card Hazard Zone Conference. This is your opportunity to recharge your command skills and stay at the forefront of incident command best practices. This year, we've added a certification lab, September 30th through October 2nd. Also added a May Day workshop, October 1st to October 2nd. The general conference is on October 3rd and 4th. The May Day workshop is filling up fast, and our early bird pricing of $415 each for the general conference is a limited time offer. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Register now at HazardZoneBC.com. Welcome back, B-Shifters, for this special edition of B-Shifter. I'm your host, John Vance. Really glad to have you here today. Today we are talking to Jeff Griffin, and I want to say that when we started the B-Shifter podcast, we wanted to keep these to around 45 minutes to an hour, but today's episode is too important and too good to chop up into two, so you might want to take a pause somewhere in there, but... We're leaving it all together for you. Jeff is a retired firefighter from the Phoenix Fire Department. He retired highly decorated after 30 years in the fire service, and he retired as a captain in 2011. You may know Jeff from his highly publicized fall through the roof at a house fire that was captured on video during the July 4th weekend in 1989. Jeff will give his harrowing accounts of that incident, how wearing the proper PPE saved his life, and this candid, tragic, and sometimes funny account of Jeff's fall through the roof and subsequent fall from grace just eight months into his retirement contains elements that I think a lot of us can relate to and may hit a chord with some of you as well. For that reason, we are including extensive show notes today with Many resources listed if you have suicidal thoughts, addiction issues, PTSD. We're going to give you some resources that you can contact. And Jeff Griffin himself is also offering himself up. If you'd like to reach out to him, we are including his phone number and his email address. So you can reach out to him as well as he is now a counselor helping with those very things that have to do with addiction. It's a riveting episode. I'm glad you're here. We're also joined today by Nick Brunacini. So sit back and enjoy B-Shifter. I think a good place to, to start because so many people listening will know about this instance because it really changed a lot of procedure in the fire service mm-hmm. was what happened at Ladder 27 on the roof. Mm-hmm. So for, for the folks who aren't familiar with that, can you... Bring us up to speed on what happened on the roof that day. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was working a, a payback uh, shift trade that day. And uh, anyway, we, we got to work. It was about, I got to work normal time, 8 o'clock in the morning. Do you want me to go into the turnouts? Yeah, the, the yeah. story? Yeah. I think with, that's interesting. With his dad and yeah. stuff? 
Yeah, because it's very important. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, well, let's let's go back. To, I, I came on the job in 1981, April of 81, and at the time we were wearing what we called day boots, and uh, our coats, well, mine never went down below that. But anyway, and I, I'm guessing you asked me out there in the lobby when we switched to bunker pants, and I know it was a, a situation that ladder or engine 37 uh, firefighter O'Malley fell through the trailer. And I, I'm guessing that was the mid '80s that your dad made that decision. Oh, are you? Do you? Do you have any clue on that, Nick? There were two. There was a fire in a, a mobile home, like you said, and uh, it, it had flashed on them, and they were getting out of it. Right. And, and, and so they got a little bit hung up. But like Jeff said, in those days we wore uh, uh, day boots. That was normal. We also had bunker gear, but you didn't have to. You wore whichever you felt like wearing. Right. So when we call them day boots because during the day that's what you would put on normally. These two mm-hmm. firefighters are on their way out. Thing flashes on them. And back in those days we also wore uh, combustible Class A uniform. Right. As we wore Levi Nouveau, hopsack yeah. jeans, and they were made out of polyester. Yes. yes. So these – Purchased at Mervyn's for about 30, 20 bucks. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but they're on the way out. It flashes on them. And uh, one of them, the last person out, got burned in their crotch area. And they said the only thing that saved them was they were wearing underwear. Mm-hmm. They, but yeah. it did, like on their inner thighs, they had the exact pattern of the pants they were wearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they said, we, and at that time we went away from FR unit. We went to a FR uniform, and then soon thereafter, the fire chief made the decision to change the bunker pants. Yeah. Yeah. So I I forgot about the Levi Nouveaux because, like I said, we could buy those at uh, the uniform place right over here on McDowell. McCrary and, and Pew. Yeah. Yeah. It's screaming at me. And, <laughs> Um, but I also, we were wearing, still wearing a polyester shorts, yeah. T-shorts. Well, and the shirts were 50-50. 50-50. It was know. a great uniform, man. You'd, you'd wash them all. You'd throw them in the dryer and let them dry for a week. Mm-hmm. And then they'd sit for a week. you take it out, shake it. It looked like it just freshly fresh, pressed. Fresh, yeah. It was a B-shifter uniform. Yes, it was. So I know I had on um, um, shorts that day because we just got done doing PT. And uh, I... Uh, Anyway, the call kicked out. It, it was July 1st weekend, and real quick history on it. The house we were responding to was a spec home. The guy had a, a nice little custom home he built over there in northeast Phoenix. And what he had done, him and his family, they decided to go on a 4th uh, of, of July weekend to leave the city, get out of the heat. I don't blame him. And I think it was 112 that day, and uh turned out to be 112. And what he had done is they were doing touch-up paint inside the uh, his house, so he moved all of his furniture out on the back patio. And there was four or five, maybe half a dozen, six vacant lots on the south side of this house. They're not there now, obviously, because they're all built up with homes. But anyway, uh, some kids were out playing with bottle rockets. And uh, I don't know the, if they were the big ones, but uh, they were probably – firefighters later on in life, I'm guessing, <laughs> playing with the fireworks. And, and I mean that because I had a lot blown up on me. So they, uh, um, the kids were out playing. Uh, a couple of them went awry, and they landed in the furniture on the back patio. 
the furniture started on fire and the fire uh, extended up the uh, south wall of the patio and got up into an attic. And now we're talking about a tile roof. And at the time, and I was assigned to a ladder company, we didn't know much about tile roofs. We knew they were out there and they were being built like crazy, but we didn't know much about the their safety and and we didn't we did not have uh no go on the tile roofs at that time uh we could go to any roof and vent any roof we wanted um you know deemed necessary and and safe and so anyway when we were responding to this this call um i was driving the back i was does everybody know what tillering is i was tillering that day and i could see uh we had a good working fire in route Middle, you know, it was a clear day, and it was, it was, and then the first engine they got on scene a couple minutes before we did. His on scene reporter was a working fire that was engine thirty one, and uh, but he 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 got. I don't remember if he got an initial all clear because that would have given me just driving, listening to the radio traffic. That would have given me a little uh, sense of. What do they got going on here? Is it how how bad is the fire? Is it interior? Is it contained to the attic? But we weren't hearing a lot of radio traffic, and I think they did get a, a preliminary all clear. And uh, so when we got on scene, command was taken over then by engine twenty seven, and he said to go to the roof and cut a hole and get utilities. So somebody had already put a twenty four foot wooden uh, ladder up there on the east gable end, and I don't know why, but it was there. So I thought, well, let's uh, work a little uh, smarter, not harder. Why would I go get my own ladder? So I we I used that ladder to – I grabbed a saw and a pick and a pickhead axe. And, and, of course, I had – by this time, I had my bunkers on, and I had everything on but my face piece. And uh, not not – I wasn't ditching the system. I was just – that's how we do it. And then when I got up on the ladder, I put my face piece on because I could see the smoke coming out of the, the tiles. And I said, we got a cooker up here. That's just me. I didn't explain that. I didn't tell anybody up there. I just saw it. And I was looking across that roof, and I didn't see any anything in my mind at that time that would say that roof's not safe to go on. Um, and, of course, we found out later there was a lot of reasons why that happened. But so as we made the roof, the captain uh, got up there. We kind of little, little stage there. It was three of us. Then the fourth guy finally came up. I don't know if he was down getting utilities or not, but he finally got up. We started to make our way across the roof, and the captain was sounding the roof with the pickhead axe. And he wasn't hitting it with the pickhead. He was hitting it the flat. And what he was essentially doing is busting the tiles. But I could feel the roof underneath my feet vibrating, and it had a good good sound to it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it just did. Then. And so as we started going over that, we, we, I remember we came to a skylight. And uh, I said, well, hey, well, let's just pop the skylight and get off this thing. I, For some reason, I just wasn't comfortable at that point. And uh, visibility was great. I, the radio traffic, nobody was squawking and nobody was screaming. It was just a routine house fire. Um, I think of that time um, the, the battalion commander showed up and took command. I think I heard that on the radio. I don't remember. But anyway, the captain opted to 
go not do that, and then go over onto the leeward side of the house, which is a good call. Uh, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't say anything about that. It was a good call. So as I was, I took a K twelve up with with me, and, and as I was preparing the saw to start, I, like I said, I had my mask on. So did everybody else. I had my gloves on, and as I was preparing the saw to start, the other guys were clearing off the tiles, and I guess they cleared off an area probably, I don't know. Six by six, four by four. I don't know, but it was a good area. And, uh, it was odd because the nail holes where they put the tile when they, uh, adhered the tile to the roof, smoke was coming out those nail holes. You know, there was several dozen of them. It looked like a pressure cooker. So I, I was starting to get that gut instinct. Hey, we're not in a good spot here. Um, my plan was the, the saw cut out once from the smoke and I restarted it and I said, I'm just going to cut this sucker and I'm going to run like hell. And so I cut a top, top cut and I was going to make a louvered cut. And I, so I made the top cut. And by that time there was so much smoke coming out of that, just from that, that I couldn't see where I was at, couldn't see anybody else. So I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to louver this thing. I, I made the final cut on the bottom and, uh, as I turned away, um, I was on the east side of the hole, and they were on the west side. And uh, nothing was – it was we are doing good. But as soon as they, they flipped those louvers, and then uh, Kirk Redfern had the uh, like a 10-foot pike pulling. He was punching the drywall out in the ceiling. And the fire uh, flashed at that time, and uh, she was going. And I could feel it. Uh, of course, we didn't have any more smoke. And I don't know why I can't explain this, but I left the saw there. I sacrificed the saw. I, I don't remember why I just left it there. And I, I circled around the, the uh, bottom of the hole. Look, again, the integrity of the roof was fine to me. And I had eight years on the job, so I'd been on several roofs at the time, and I'd been taught by some great guys. I, I just felt good. At that time. So I walked over, I got up, and my plan was to, uh, typical fireman, is, is I just remembered where we put the ladder up. That's all I, that's all I remember. And uh, I said, you know, I'm just going to, and like I said, visibility was, it was a perfect day. It was hotter than hell, uh, temperature-wise. But And I'd stepped up over the peak, and uh, I was walking the strong points of the roof that I was taught. And I got over by that gable in. I was probably, I don't know, six to ten feet from the ladder. And I heard tiles dropping. And I go, wonder what that is. Just out of curiosity, I wonder what that is. And I was stopped. You can see it on video. I looked over to my left, and the captain was following me. I didn't know this. The captain was following me, and the roof failed uh, on the north side when I was on the south side. The roof failed on the, on the north side. He's fallen back. And he grabs the the tie. I don't know what what that's called. The um, ridge. The the ridge, I guess. Mm-hmm. He but it had tiles still on it. So mm-hmm. he grabbed that. And he, as he was falling back, he grabbed that kind of like if somebody shoved him in a hole. And the other uh, engineer, Pete Hawking, he had. Uh, it was weird. I thought he'd fallen through the roof, you know, like a hole. But we found out later what it was. But he was up to his waist. 
And I, I literally thought to myself, what are these guys doing? Why are they screwing around? we got to get off here. And I, I looked and I saw, i never forget, I saw the captain's eyes. And, and I could see him through the mask. And I went, you know, this guy's in trouble. And this is, that's not a good look. So I, I made a decision right there. I'm going to, because remember, I just came from where they were seconds, milliseconds before. The roof seemed sound to me at that point in time. So I see this. I hear everything starting to compute. I did see Kirk Redfern, but he was, had no contact with me. He, he was doing his job, punching the drywall through. He didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Poor guy. So as I saw, I took off after him. I, I'm figuring, I, I remember there was a chimney over there, and I was going to, I don't know, I was going to do a MacGyver thing or something, and <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But I, my plan, my plan was to, like, grab him, hook him, and pull him over to the south side of the roof where I was. That was my plan. And I don't know if I was going to get both of them, but I, I was pretty sure I could have got the captain out, uh, Rick Pessy. And on my way over there, on my way, it was about the fourth or fifth step. As my, I remember, forget it, it was my left foot. And as my left foot touched the roof, I felt it. And I went, oh, no. Um I felt it give, and I knew I was in trouble. And so what I did, just it's a normal reaction, what everybody would do. When somebody pushes you into a hole or a pool or whatever, you cut, you tuck. So I tucked because I, 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 I knew I was – here's what I really thought. I thought I was going down to the floor. And uh, it was a vaulted ceiling and turned out to be. But I was a 14, 15, 16-foot fall, and I was going – in a tuck position on my left side, basically. I was going to take a shot, but I, I was pretty good. I was pretty confident I would have survived this shot because, uh, you know, I, I've been beat up my whole life. So, well, it was the better of the two alternatives. The, yeah, right. So, as I, as I tucked, I, I remember hitting the roof that was still intact, which blew my mind because I didn't, why is that still intact? That where I was headed. And I felt something tug on my on my helmet, and I didn't know what that was till later on. And boom! And I remember landing after a short drop. Turned out to be I was I was in the attic, and I go, "What the hell?" And I'm looking around, and all I saw was fire from the. I could see where the vent hole was; it was shooting out of there. But everywhere else, left and right, I looked left and right. And I got up to my knee. I was on my knees in the attic. It was a four-foot vaulted ceiling there. I got up to my knees, and I thought, why why didn't I go through? What happened? And uh, Dale Lockett popped into my head. Um, he died at a residential house fire in 79, 10 years prior to this deal. And... I thought maybe I'm hung up on something. I really did. I really thought. So I remember on my knees, I was in a squatted knee position, and I'm reaching, trying to figure, what the hell am I hung up on? And uh, like I could have done anything about it anyway. And uh, about that time, uh, my mask got turned black, and the heat was so intense. It was, uh, it was exactly like if you touched a hot stove. Uh, but it was my whole body. And I jumped. I, out of reaction, it was nothing. I jumped. And I don't know why I was jumping to. 
down or up or wherever. I didn't have any clue. All I knew is it was just like if you touched a hot stove and you pulled your hand away, wherever your hand ends up <laughs> is, you know, you could have slapped the wife or the girlfriend, the boyfriend. <laughs> anyway, so I, I jumped and, uh, reaction, total reaction. I don't know where I gathered that strength from, but I, I, and now, and unbeknownst to me, and I didn't plan it, I ended up back on the roof. And, but as I came out of the hole, I was kind of doing a bear crawl. And uh, I'm back on the roof that I just fell through. I'm going, what? I'm done. This is over. I knew what, I, what I, my mask went through. I could feel the air in my tube. It was hotter than hell. And I said, I'm done. It's over. And I kept bear crawling. Now I said, well, I can stand up. Why in the hell isn't the rest of the roof collapsing like a catastrophic fail like we're seeing and we're trained? And when one part goes, the other goes, why isn't this happening? And uh, I, and I remember my hands were killing me, um, so I flicked my gloves off up on the on the roof, and then then I felt something rolling down on my body, and I, I thought I didn't know what anything was. I was freaking out, and it was the top shell of my helmet falling off, and then I ripped my mask off. I couldn't breathe that hot air anymore. It was just too brutal, and I said, if I go through it again, it's legitimately done. I'm oh, It's over. And th- then I still wasn't feeling too much pain except for my hands. My hands were killing me. And uh, I don't know why that is. Why our hands? Maybe because they get moisture in there or something. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Nerves. They, they were burning though. They were hurting bad. So as I, uh, um, I kind of started to get my faculties a little bit. I remember seeing a pile of sand out in the backyard. I was just going to jump in it. I, this roof is falling all over us. <laughs> Two, you know, three guys are in my my crew, and then me. I go to get them, and I'm in. What, what the heck else is coming? And I'm on it, back on it. And I said, I'm out of here. And uh, uh, somebody grabbed my. It turned out to be Rick Pessy grabbed my my bottle. I'm, I remember somebody pushing me, and of course I found the ladder. I didn't go down the ladder the traditional style. I went down on my ass. Um, I, I had to. I couldn't. I couldn't walk down. Hi, how you doing, Nick? I, you know, I had to get off that roof. And when I got to ground, I was trying to take my turnouts off. Everybody was pan. It was panic. There was maydays going off. Well, we didn't have mayday then. Uh, emergency traffic was going off. Um, engine twenty seven and saw the whole thing. A cat, the command, but he moved into the BC wagon at the time, and uh, emergency traffic was going off. I could hear that. I didn't. I didn't know where my radio was. Like I said, I left the saw up there, my gloves up there, and I thought my help. So I reached back up. I was weird. I reached up when I got the ladder. We parked the ladder right on the curb where we laddered the roof. Well, I reached down my head and I had a, something on my head. And what the hell is that? And I undid my chin strap and I looked, and all I had was a cone head. And I, I don't mind being a cone head. Those guys are pretty cool. And I had a freaking cone head, and I, I, I cannot put it together. Why? What's going on? I can't get my turnouts off. They're too hot. They hit me with a green line. Um, engine somebody out there had had a green line going, and they and they were squirting me down. And I look over, and there's the captain that I originally went after, and he still had that. Can I say, oh shit? Mm-hmm. He still had that oh shit look from the roof that I went to get. And I, I looked right at him. I says, uh, Rick, 
where's Pete? And uh, he goes, what? I said, where's Pete? And Kirk Redford was, I'll never forget, it was right there. And he goes, well, he came down with you. I go, hey, man, there's three of us here and one's gone. And he goes, oh, no. I go, oh, no. I remember looking over my left shoulder. I says, uh, he's a goner. Because what what I went through, if he's still in it, he's dead for sure. There's no doubt. Well, what had happened is he, as he fell through, me and the captain, I went after the captain. I fall through. Captain follows me. Pete goes out the north side of the roof. The engineer on engine 31, who was on the north side command, at the original command, he sees this. Pete's in dire straits, so he goes and gets a banger ladder and puts it up, and Pete self-extricates. Well, in the mix-up, Pete's on the north side of the roof. We're on the east side. We can't see him. I'm thinking we got to. I'm a, I'm going to be involved in a firefighter fatality, which nobody wants to be. Nobody. And all of a sudden, here comes Pete walking around the corner, and I said, "Oh my! I can't believe that he's alive." I, I really I didn't. If he survived what I did, he's a manly man <laughs> because it, I can't I can't describe the pain and the how hot it was. Well, anyway. So I, I wasn't a very good patient. Uh, they transported. I was a horrible. In fact, I'm not very good. I was a horrible patient. Horrible. And uh, I'm down to my, my 50-50. No, no, no. We had 100% cottons then. Did we? Yeah, because it was long. Well, yeah, because we had, we had switched. There was yeah. no more. When we got rid of the day boots, it was the FR about the same time. Mm-hmm, Remember? Mm-hmm. And the first ones, like you'd buy the pants. And yeah. One would shrink six inches. And- <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah. But a lot of guys wore those anyway. So, uh, we, yeah. But I remember we were in 100% cotton shirts because mine was soaking wet from the heat, the sweat, and everything. But it was a dress now because it stretched so mm-hmm. much. So, I don't know why I didn't take that off. But um, I guess it wasn't hot up there. But everything else I was getting, my bunkers. My gloves, I say, they're all off. And that, and that still puzzling moment was the helmet. And I still don't know what the heck that was. I Have you ever looked in your helmet? Mm-hmm. You have? Mm-hmm. No, you didn't. Mm-hmm. You've looked in your helmet. Yeah, what we, it's made out of. We take it apart. Mm-hmm. You took your helmet apart. Yeah, when I was a firefighter at Station 1, uh, the safety officers came in and said, you oh. guys have to clean your helmets. Oh. And so we sprayed them. Engine one sprayed theirs with easy off, and they put them in the oven for like <laughs> oh, like half an hour at 400 degrees. Okay. Well, they came out looking exactly as you would. So we had basically destroyed eight helmets, <coughs> How many helmets and we yet? figured out what they were. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I didn't participate in that study. Well, but I, you were I, on C-shift. Yeah, I was on C-shift at the time. Mm-hmm. But I was misplaced B-shifters, what they always said. So – that that puzzling. So I saw it sitting there on the ground, and my my bunkers were there. One boot I flicked off, and I think I hit the ladder with it. The other one I don't know where it went. And my bunkers were in a pile. My pants and my jacket was laying somewhere, and it's kind of still smoldering, which is kind of weird, <laughs> like a meteorite or something. <laughs> well, Pete, we have we're reunited. They they say we got one firefighter injured. I, I didn't realize that was me. I'm a, like I said, I was a horrible, horrible, horrible patient. I get in the back of the rescue, and, you know, I wouldn't lay on the gurney. And uh, I heard, I did hear command do this. We got a fire, injured firefighter. We're going to county. And I'm at 60th Street in Greenway, which is probably 20 miles, right? 20, mm-hmm. Yeah, at least. And we didn't have the freeways then. So 
and it's 112, and I says, there's no effing way we're going to, so we're going to JCL in the rescue. And the medics go, well, command said, I go, I don't care, they ain't burnt. Tell them I said, <laughs> where's where we're going? What are they going to do? So, anyway, so we. I'm the patient. I'm the patient, yeah. man. I'm yeah, the horrible one. And they're like, we're the fire department. You'll do what we do to you. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> Take it, son. Yeah, so, um, Green, uh, what was that guy's name? He's going, he's looking back at us. And, and by the way, we're going code three. <laughs> and he goes, well, I said, turn the lights and sirens on. They do for everybody else. You're going to do it for me. No, nah, it wasn't a joyride. Anyway, so we get to JCL. Um, they had the gurney next to me. Come on, man, get in the gurney. No. And and uh, they, I was, I'm not riding in the hospital on the effing gurney. I'm just not doing it. Mm-hmm. And so we get in there, and, of course, the triage, what, what are you bringing us? <laughs> you know, I'm slopping wet, basically. Mm-hmm. What are you bringing us? And I, I go, it's me. And I had second-degree burns on my hand and down my left leg, and, and I kind of held them out, and I go, oh. Okay, I'll go to whatever room to. So I go over there, and uh, I got on the bed, though. I will say I got on the bed. And I don't know, it took some coaxing. Where's the doctor? Yeah. He's working the trauma. Oh, great. Well, I'm going to the nurse's shower. What? I know you guys have one here. I'm not sitting here, and these burns getting worse. I'm not doing it. I told you I was a horrible patient. So I, I finally got talked to I talked. Well, I, I muscled my way into the nurse's shower. I got the combo, went in. That's what I did. I rotisseried in there for, I don't know, I don't know how long I was in there. And finally they came and got me and laid me down. And the doc's doing what doctors do. You know, he's being very methodical. He's okay, how are you doing, Jeff? And, and my this these burns are killing me. And finally he's listening to my lung sounds. And I said, I'd had enough. I had a fun enough. And I reached over and I grabbed him just below his genitalia. And uh said, and he goes, hey, hey, what's up? I go, yeah, I know you got stuff in this hospital to make this pain go away. Go get it. And he goes, well, why don't we speak? I go, listen, you know, I still got all my faculties. I'm not a level one yet. And I'm about ready to, you know, pull your Anyway, so he did. He came in. He started a pick line, and they gave me IV or Demerol, and that worked. Yeehaw, um, that worked. So that that leads into another story. But going back to the investigation of the of the roof collapse, uh, which was very interesting. I had to go to um, interrogation. I call it. No, it wasn't. The Phoenix Fire Department was not like that. Um, they were they were very gentle to me. Um, I met with the Bruce Varner um, down at the safety at station eight, old station eight, and they had the video and the audio, and they were putting it all together, editing stuff. And OSHA people were there, some other people, I don't know, and they were asking what happened. So I kind of told them what I thought at the time. Well, the picture, in the, the eye in the sky. <laughs> Tainted a little bit different picture uh, than what I thought. What, what they turned out, the investigation was the the top cord of the trusses. Okay, there the trusses in Phoenix in the Southwest are built with gusset plates. Okay, what they found out and they showed me because they slowed it down. It was really interesting. The the OSB that was on top of the top cord, the gusset plates had failed when I came walking across. Okay, boom. 
that top cord collapses, the gusset plates had fallen off. You could see the uh, complete four-bait sheet of OSB flip up like a teeter-totter, and it ejected some tiles off the other end from when I went like that. Pete Hawking, the guy who went off the north side, that's what happened to him. He wrote a complete sheet down. That's why he didn't go all the way through. And he was able to climb back out of that hole, which, remember, it's a vaulted ceiling, so it gets, so he probably only had to climb out a two foot hole then by the time he trucked along, like going towards into mud or something. And um, then the PBI was wearing PBI, which they were brand new in the Phoenix Fire Department at the time. We were wearing uh, Nomex hoods. Nomex turnout jackets and I think it was Nomex bunkers too. If I and I was a test dummy, heavy on dummy for PBI. That was another story. Anyway, so PBI gathers my equipment and they take it back to Georgia, where I think they're based out of, to study it. And uh, because they're the scientist guys or wherever they are, they they were very curious about the potato chipping on my left pocket and my of my jacket and my um, my bucker pants. They said, this doesn't happen. And you not have third-degree burns for that to happen. So, and then the thing about my helmet, the what had happened is on the helmets, if you look, there's a plastic piece in there that holds the chin strap to the shell. And on underneath the shell is a piece of fire um, foam, a molded piece of foam. Well, that's connected with this little piece. Well, that's a breakaway feature. And I didn't know this till then. That breakaway feature, I guess some firemen have probably died over this over the years. They've got hung up in something, and their helmets didn't um, break away, and they were burned or pulled their mask off. In this case, it, it would have pulled my mask off if it didn't break. The plastic gave before my mask pulled off. So that was kind of a, a big thing for me. And then I started putting it all together. I go, so that's what that little tug I felt was that thing giving away. And then the stuff falling off was the shell falling off. I still had protection. But I didn't know anything about this. And so they take it back six, seven months later. I, I go to another meeting. And the, this is what they told me. And it's I didn't invent this. PBI, the, the manufacturers told me that for it to, to sustain that amount of damage from the fire it was crinkled, it had to exceed 2,000 degrees. And they estimated it was a 2,000 degree exposure for seven seconds. Their turnouts aren't made to do that. It's 1,400 is the top. So, of course, now I'm their poster child. And literally. Literally, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was a you know, as a politician, I probably could have made some money off it. Anyway, um, so the mask, it it failed, but it didn't. Um, as a matter of fact, I still have it. And if you just hooked it up to a tank, it would still work. You just can't see out of the mask. But you couldn't even clean it. It's it's, it's crazy. It's cra- glazed. Yeah, yeah. And um, But other than that, it's still operating condition. That, they don't, nobody knows, who knows, but that was probably a seconds away from co- catastrophic failure. So your, your whole time in there was seven seconds? That's what they estimated, yeah. Okay. That's that's a fair estimate, yeah. And this was uh, 
Probably one of the first events like this caught on video. I mean, it was this is 1989? 89. Okay. Uh, July 4th weekend. At the time, it's not anymore, but at the time, fireworks in Phoenix were illegal. Now it's not. They, you can have fireworks. Uh, at the time, they were illegal. So the kids were playing, and I don't know what they did. Yeah, so, um, yeah. The guy who videotaped it yeah. was a uh, – he was the sportscaster for the local news channel. And he got a like a consumer cam for yeah. Christmas or his birthday yeah. or something. I, I a video, a VHS camera. Yeah, so he was just screwing around with it in his backyard and, oh, yeah. look, the neighbor's on fire. Yeah. So he's right. filming the fire and that's who – He was yeah. – he, he, he told me I went to talk to him. He said – he heard all the ruckus, not not us. We weren't there yet. He heard the fireworks going off, and 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 then he saw a column of smoke. So it was it was not just a little column; it was going. And he ran in the house. He had a new baby. He ran in the house. He goes, "Honey, the house is on fire." I'm getting. And he went and got the video camera. <laughs> and she goes, "What about the baby?" He goes, "No, no, no, not our house, their house." So he went out, like he said, and he stood on this little wall. And the unedited version, he he doesn't say a word in it. He's oh my, when I fell through, he didn't like me. Us would go oh shit, yeah. and and his wife was pretty excited when she saw that. So uh, another my my a friend of the dear friend in my family lived two houses to the east of this. When we pulled up, they saw the fire, and we pulled up. They didn't know I was working. I got off the truck and I happened to get off on their side, and they saw me. Hey, Uncle Jeff! Hey, Uncle Jeff! And I, hi, kitties! You know, I'm going to work, and she saw the whole thing. Uh, she's because that's the side of the roof I fell in on, and she saw me the whole time. And she knew it was me, and she called the family and says, "Oh my God, Jeff's fall through a roof!" And you know, then the red car showed up at the house. Yeah, and uh, everybody was. Um, is he cussing? Yeah, well, he's fine. <laughs> so um, they came down. To the, like I said, when all those people came to the emergency room, uh, it was pretty phenomenal. Fire trucks. Um, I don't know. There was so many. But when that then now I didn't. We didn't know it was videotaped till six o'clock news. I I was doped up, sitting on the couch, kind of just relaxing. And I don't even know why the news was on. I couldn't tell you. I'm not a real. I watch the news, but I'm. Yeah. And that year, which was unfortunate as well, was we set the record for uh, pediatric drownings in the nation. And in fact, they, they formed a dart team. Remember that drowning? It was horrible with drownings. Every fireman, that's the worst call. Horrible. And that was a lead story. And then all of a sudden, they jumped to a fire. Destroys a home in Northeast Phoenix, and I saw a little clip of it before they went to the commercial. And I, I what the hell? How do they get the video of that so quick? <laughs> you know, I didn't see the news camera there. I didn't mm-hmm. see a news vehicle. Uh, of course, I wasn't really paying attention. And then they came back from the commercial, and they oh, fire in North, and they show this whole thing. Me, what I just described, to you guys. They showed the whole thing, and. I, and I'm getting shocked, and I, I'm starting to remember. Oh, that's what. Oh, that's why that hurts. And at the time, we had landlines. We nobody had cell phones, and the landline started ringing. 
at my house, which is a testament to the firefighter. Everybody. I had people, I'm not kidding you, calling me that were on vacation that heard about it. This is before, so if it was social media, I don't know, I'd probably have to jump off a cliff, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they were hearing about it all over quick. I mean, it was in within minutes. So I had to t- take it off, disconnect it because it was just too much. Uh, and it's not, I didn't want my privacy or anything. I just I wanted to sleep and I was hurt. So, uh, that it was incredible. I, I can't even, I don't know. I don't know how many people called. Well, the next day I had, a, I had to go to the burn unit at Maricopa County and my mom was a nurse there. So she knew everybody down there in the burn unit. And I walked in, they laughed at me. <laughs> they sent you to us. And I go, well, I got an owie here. <laughs> no, no, we'll, show, we'll show you an owie, Jeff. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is a burn unit in yeah. Maricopa County. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I see. They, they sent you to the burn unit? Oh, I have to go. All right, come here. And I granted, I, I get it. They they deal with the most horrific burns ever. And I, mine were inconsequential compared to, well, they didn't see the video. <laughs> okay. If they saw the video, it might have changed them a little bit. So they put, they had a debris and they put me in a tub and, uh, they gave me some hoopla hoopla to put me in this tub. I wouldn't get in the tub. I, I'm a horrible patient. Told you guys that. So I got in the, the tub and they, and they gave me their stuff. I was okay with that. I was a monkey in there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, so they, uh, it was, it was, it hurt like hell. Cause my hand was, was a real bad one. And, uh, that just hurt. Anybody who's been burned, it just hurt. But looking at the video, comparing the video to the amount of burns I had was baby shit mm-hmm. compared to what it should have been. Right. Had I not, what his Nick Brunus and Alan, the big guy, had he not, and this is attributed all to him, had he not stayed the course with his, Quest, Alan Brunacini, to make us, and he he's got knucklehead kids on his ass too about it, you know. Dad, you know, I know I'm sure they sit around the family and hey, what the hell? And okay, and they got to work on the job and hear all the crap. And I was one of them, but had he not persevered through that and said, "I'm making a decision and I'm standing by it and I'm standing tall," and and I know for a fact I'm I was a gone I was dead. There's no doubt. You could nobody human being could have handled that. The other two guys, uh Pete Hawking and um Rick Pessy, you know, severe burns. For sure if they had the day boots, for sure. Pete Hawking because he was standing erect. Uh, yeah, for sure. Maybe they both would have died eventually from their burns. But I me, I'm a goner. Well, if you didn't have your SCBA face piece on and, and on air too, I mean, which Absolutely. today we we still see video every day of people on roofs, yes, without their SCBA. Where they call it at the ready. Mm-hmm. If that, are, how, how do you ready yourself for a an emergency situation? Listen, let's say I was doing that. Okay, I, for little critics out there, let's say I I had I didn't have mine on. Okay, and it, and it's we would have walked off that roof unscathed let's say just for the heck of it however it turned to shit on us that quick and now we got guys in peril two crew members if you look at the video if people watch i'm fine 
where I was. I, all I had to do was turn and go. Get up, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But we got men down. Police officers face it every day. Soldiers face it every day. I faced it. You got to make a decision. Are you gonna are you gonna fight or flight? Right? I I I don't know what came over me. What I was thinking. It was just the reaction. The the captain's got the oh shit look. Pete's looking at me like what help? I guess is all I can say. And I went. So what if I didn't have my SCBA? I'm done. Going to help those guys. That's like going into a seriously. That's like a soldier, in my opinion, going to rescue his buddies without a weapon. Uh-huh. Now, why would he do that? You know, sometimes you might have to, but if you have a weapon, I'm taking mine. I'm taking the biggest one like Arnold Schwarzenegger uh-huh. would have. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Why wouldn't you to, to go? It's better to have more than not enough. Yeah. I can always send them home. So, uh, based on that, you know, I, I I I feel sorry for that attitude nowadays because you know I had one guy told me, well, we want to feel the full effects of the fire, and I recall being on my knees in that attic at two thousand degrees, the full effects. And it just, idiots, it, just complete it, it makes, utter. Idiots. It makes no sense. Yeah, it common sense. That's like saying. I want to feel what the shirt feels, so I'm going to iron my, <laughs> my body. Yeah, yeah. You can't make it up, man. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, th- this is at a conference, at the East Coast Fire Chiefs conference. A guy tells me this, and I and I I said, okay, well, wh- what do you mean? He goes, well, we use our ears as indicators, and I go, what? Because I really, you know, I was a fish. I was only eight years on the job, but his dad, his dad was there at this conference. But they've been all around. They've heard all the terminology. I haven't. I'm, you know, here. And we, what? Your ears. So when our ears start to bubble, we back out. Okay. Well, why would you want? Okay. All right. That doesn't make no, it makes no, if I can wear, okay, so you're a professional athlete. Okay. Let's say football. All right. Because that's my deal. So they, you go out and you're going to, Go against three hundred pound linemen that are beasts, and you're not going to wear your helmet. Why would you do that? You're going to get the best helmet that money can buy. I would think to protect yourself, right? right? And you're going to wear the right clothing. They don't get dissed for that. They're amateurs. That's why I, they I, say what they say. Well, I'm telling you, it, it happened. I heard it. So yeah. I said, I said, my goal, my goal, and, and just think about this. What if we? What if I had died at that that day? Over what? A house, a, a, a spec home in Phoenix, Arizona. For what? It, we, there was nothing in it. There was no furniture in the interior. There was no people inside. I would have died in vain, I guess, over nothing. I mean, if you ask anybody, homeowner or whatever, they would have. Agreed What'd they to do it. with the house after the fire? Let's take a quick break. Enhance fire ground leadership with our critical thinking and strategic decision-making class designed to strengthen incident command through the functions of command and foster a safer, more effective decision-making process for fire service professionals. The only critical thinking and strategic decision-making class at the Allen V. Brunacini Command Training Center in Phoenix, Arizona is May 22nd and 23rd. 
Sign up at bshifter.com. I gutted it. It's back. It's built. It's rebuilt. It took them a, so they, about a year. They, they tore it down? No, no they just gutted it. Okay. Yeah, but the walls, they kept the walls up, yeah. Nice house. So I guess that you would have died for them to keep the walls up, to save them seven, eight grand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Restoration, Jeff. There you go. Restoration, yeah. Jeff, yeah. So, and and then I heard, and I'm not positive. I'd like to look into this, and I and it probably wouldn't take too much to look into, but the boys that, that were shooting off those fireworks, I, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's what I heard is they were brought up on charges. And their parents, I think because they were young kids, they had to pay it the damage because we had lost time. We had a lot big through their homeowners. So, you know, I, I don't know on that. I, I would surely like to, you know, I'm not going to go scold them, boys. I'd just like to talk to them <laughs> and, and say, hey, how? Yeah. You were there 30 years, right? Yeah. So out of your 30 years, this is eight years in. Yeah. Almost did you out. ever, was this the most traumatic thing that happened to you on the department or did you have other injuries or anything that rivaled uh, going through that? No, nothing rivaled that. I got hurt all the time. Um, you know, I got hurt <laughs> cooking dinner when I cut the tip of my finger off. Um, now, you know, yeah, but, but that day forward, when I got back to work, I lost a, um, about six weeks of work and it was only because of my hand. My, they were going they wanted to do a skin graft and I said, no, um, I don't know why I just said no. And, uh, so they put me on light duty and that, Light duty cured that. It's weird. Light duty cures a lot of ails. Yes, it does. <laughs> fire department. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I had to go to the training academy or something. And that even cured it even better. So, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I lost six weeks. But I, when I got back, see, that was in July. I got back probably the end of September. Summer, July, August. Yeah, probably. Yeah, August. Well, we're right in the middle of a monsoon season. And our my first fire after I got back was a uh, lightning strike, which people don't see a lot of. But it, we get them out there. We get them all the time. And this attic was rolling. And it already vented. So we were going up to the scuttle hole in the attic. So I got a banger ladder. And I got up there. And I was just going to fog it real quick. Well, it flashed when I stuck my head up there, and I went. I remember trying to get out because it was a little sensitive, my hand and stuff. And of course, there was eight firemen up my butt mm-hmm. trying to help me, mm-hmm. and I could. I was, ah, ah, and they're going, "You all right?" I go, "Yeah, just my hand." And to this day, my hand's still sensitive. It's a ghost it's, injury. It's a ghost injury. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, traumatic. Physically, yeah. Mentally, no. There was other that, that that seeing yourself almost die on film is weird. Like somebody that's been there might be able to tell you, but it's just weird because uh, then your thoughts and start coming through your head. Oh man, if I'd have looked, if I'd have went to the left or the right, I, I know that I I can say this with conviction. Without that mask on, for sure I'm dead. But without the top of the line fire equipment burned there's just no doubt because i've been hot before we all have we've all been in heated situations you should see my hood my hood's like somebody took a torch to it 
That would have been my face. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty face, right? <laughs> you do. And that would have been scarred. Most right? rhinos do. <laughs> Most rhinos, yeah. yeah. Still pretty. Yeah. Now, you're talking, let's say, let's say I that, those are for sure third-degree burns on my face. Maybe lose an ear, an eye, because it was pretty, it was right here. You know, do I survive that? Do I go 30 years? Hell no. And I know I, I because all the surgeries and all that stuff I'd had to go through. I, but no. So so going going back to uh, when you got that Demerol. Yeah. I need a what? cup of coffee for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we, pa- could, we could take a pause. Can and, we take a break? Take 10. Hell yeah. yeah. Hey, while we all uh, jumped up from this recording to grab a cup of coffee and a little comfort break, I wanted to tell you a couple of things and remind you of a couple of things. In the show notes, there are a lot of resources. If you or somebody you know in any line of emergency services or outside of emergency services need help with PTSD addiction issues or other behavioral problems, um, go ahead and look that up and, and pass those resources on to them or, or use them yourself. And of course, Jeff's information is available in the show notes to contact him as well. We've also included in there two links to B-Shifter Magazine. Jeff has written two awesome articles in B-Shifter Quarterly talking about his experiences both falling through the roof and with addiction. And the other thing is we did put the video link in to that original production back in 1989 of Jeff falling through the roof. It's a little dated as far as production goes, but still relevant for many fire departments out there. So let's return back to B-Shifter. We were talking about uh, that pain management. Yeah, let's you, talk a little bit about in. that, John. A little a little pain management, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. Um, we're going to go into that deal. Let, let's let's start it off by I, I was no angel. Okay, we've been discussing it on the off mic here of our behavior um, when we were youngsters and getting swats and whatnot. <clears throat> um, I was no angel, and uh, by any means, and I I, I I'm going to say I only deserve ninety nine percent of those swats. The extra ones that he gave. Um, you know, just for the heck of it, I probably didn't deserve, but eventually it caught up with me. So I was no angel and thank God that the Phoenix fire department hired me, um, because, um, that I, I fit in like a duck to water. Um, you you didn't have to be the smartest guy in it and they got smart guys now, but I didn't know anybody I had, I had on the job and, and. I was so, so fortunate to be hired at 21 years old and um, and then to be propelled along by guys like Alan Brunacini and, and, and having, you know, just a, a guy around the fire chief that, that was a man's man. And, uh, but yet he had his moments, I'm sure. And, and, you know, his family and I was, I met his whole family during this whole deal, but most of us, there's statistics out there that prove this, that every fireman's going to get hurt on the line of duty. You, Nick, you get hurt on the line of duty? I was at County Burn Unit once. Okay. You know who I ran into the first time? Who? It was Melvin, uh, Melvin Burt, Dr. Blaze. De- Dr. Blaze. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were burned up together. Yeah, Different okay. fires, same De- day. Okay. <laughs> so whether it was an incident like mine or a car fire or a trash fire, 
you're going to make a mistake. You're going to get hurt and you're going to, you're going to lose time over it. It's just a fact. And how that treatment comes about is what's going to affect, could affect the rest of your career. And with me, um, that when they gave me that Demerol and it inst, I never had a pain, pain pill that I can remember, uh, prior to that. I had other pain pills in the, in the film, in the form of spirits. Um, and like I said, I was no angel and I was, um, you know, a, a drinker with the fellas. I mean, what a, what a place to be, you know, be, a uh, in the Phoenix, in the fire department, um, family nationwide and wherever you went, it was, you know, set them up, Joe. You know, they'd sent a, <clears throat> it was like early 1980, and they, they sent these uh, mental health professionals mm-hmm. to come in to look at the firefighters and, you know, the the, the heroes and all the rest. Yeah, yeah. And they were with different companies, and they were there for about a month. And I remember they were sitting around talking about what they were going to do with all this stuff. And one of them looked at, like, the BC who was leading the group and said, you are the most exquisite set of enablers that exist anywhere. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Enablers? Yeah. Okay. So it's the kind of the cult you just described. Yeah, it's you know? absolutely, yeah. We all partook of the uh, yeah. activities. Yeah. Um, and, and would I say enablers? Yeah. So wait, were you, would you consider, at the time, Yeah. did you consider yourself social or was it a dependency that no, the shakes? No, I wasn't dependent. No. Okay. No. In, in knowing what I know now, no, I was not. I was able to, uh, I, I, I don't know what a social drinker is. Um, I guess it'd probably be my wife that can drink uh, half a beer or she doesn't drink wine. I guess she's one. I, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. But no, I was never that. Um, I, you know, in the beginning, I, you know, I had my ups and downs with, with drinking the hangovers and whatnot. But I, I was able to shelf it for periods of time where it was not a dependency physically or emotionally. When this hit, this deal here, it it was weird because it was a start of, it's almost like the floodgates opened because it was a point in my life when a lot of bad shit was happening, which happens to everybody in life. It just does. And... You know, this happened, then I, I hurt my knee um, several months later. And I, I wasn't on a prescription for those burns for much, well, like th- a week maybe. And that was before all the guidelines they have now. And uh, I don't recall it being an issue. It was over with. You know what I mean? It was done. They were done. In fact, I don't even know if they took them all, to, to, to be quite frank with you. But, yeah, I was drinking. When I left the emergency room, the doc said, here, he gave me something in a bottle. I don't even know what it was. It could have been fentanyl. <laughs> it probably wasn't, but I don't know. He said, take these rest and I get through and go home and get a 12-pack. <laughs> yeah. Hey, all right. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> a great doc. So, Nitrous oxide. <laughs> T- Ten years earlier, he would have told you, pick up some Paul Malls on the yeah, way yeah, home, yeah, too. Yeah. 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 So, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't being a, a dick or nothing yeah. about it. He was just, 1980 medicine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, I get home. Oh, in fact, when I went to the the county, 
They say, how much do you weigh? I said, about 225. And he goes, oh, here. Here, take those before you get in the tub. Well, you know, yeah, yippee-i-okay. <laughs> I was, yeah, I'll get in the tub. And I was put some bubbles, put a little Mexican senorita in there, and we're good, man. And uh, and some margaritas and some carte blanche. Come on, man. So um, be looking like Station Eighteen Champagne. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, I'll get in the tub. So then it was like I said, it was a station in '89. Um, I had that, and then I blew my knee out playing football. Had <laughs> uh, you know semi pro football for the fire department team. And that started another round. Here you go. And uh, it wasn't like I was in a lot of pain. It's just that's what they do, pain management. Uh, I'm not, I don't, okay, I'll take them. And then, you know, I had a series of injuries, and it just kept happening. Then my, my ma died, or first my dad died, though I never knew, and I had to go deal with something out of state that was just a, stupid. And uh, not knowing your dad for all your years and, being reintroduced in his life and you know i was pretty angry he left you like you were four or young yeah divorced when i was four yeah 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 and then all of a sudden 30 years later i get a phone call at the firehouse um i don't know how they tracked me down through the he must have known and i answered the phone at griffin line one and uh (laughs) i'll get everybody griffin line one (laughs) Uh, by the way, we used to have phones that had <laughs> lines on them, okay? And a PA system. And a PA system. Okay, boys. Yeah, I know. It, it, yeah, now Bobby began. Yeah, now, he yeah, came yeah, to answer yeah, the phones. Yeah. So, you know, and you'd put it on hold, and then hit intercom, and you'd say, uh, Griffin or whoever, line one. So, anyway, that's what happened, Griffin line one. I pick it up as Griffin. It was the uh, uh, senior assisted living place in in uh, Montana, which I knew where my dad was lived up there, but I didn't know anything about him. And they said, well, your dad passed away last night, and you're going to need to come take care of his affairs. What? Why me? Well, because he has you listed as next to kin. And, you know, of course, the F-bombs, what the hell? You, you know, mm-hmm. I said it to them. Well, you, I don't know the fucking guy. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, next thing you know, I, I talked to my mother and and then my mother always referred to him as that son of a bitch. And I understand. And she said, well, you better go. So I I said, all right, I'll go. So I, me and my sister fly to Montana on the death deal. that You, you can get a right-now ticket as long as you have a death certificate and they don't charge you the exorbitant, exorbitant fees that they do. So we go up there, rent a car, have to drive to uh, Podunk, Montana, Glasgow, Montana. It's in the northeast part of the state. And we go into this senior assisted living um, place. It's more of an apartment rather than a, a long-term care. And I'm looking around. I go, oh, that's kind of neat. You know, and some neat stuff in there. And we're going through his paperwork. And uh, I found a will. And it says, uh, last will and Ted's. My dad's name was Roger, Roger F. Griffin. I have two children. It names me and misspells my sister's name, but it named her, who I bequeath nothing to. And, yeah, and it's uh, I bequeath this to some Joe over here. Some I don't know who these people are. So I, I looked at it, my sister over there in the corner, and I said, you know, we're not technically we're breaking the law because he's we're not on this deal. What? Let me see that. You know, and, and his buddy's behind us, and he goes, oh, he didn't mean it like that. I go well, it doesn't matter what he meant. This is a last will and testament. 
it's you know trifolded blue and all this stuff. Uh, I said we're out of here, and uh, so I went and got a bottle of Jack Daniels, and uh, which what we do. And I'm going through a lot of stress at the time. I really truly am, and uh, uh, with this deal, have to get a lawyer, probate all this stuff, get back to Phoenix. It's a mess. It's totally a mess, and they uh, he had some land up there that he willed to me and my sister, and that became an issue, and, and they were coming after me through my dad's estate. Yeah, I, well, I had to get a, somebody called a lawyer, and uh, they, he wasn't too helpful and blah, blah, blah. And I was mad. I just lost my dad who I never knew. Well, what had happened is right before I was leaving, I, I was really mad. Uh, anger was a real bad issue with me. And the bank from Podunk, uh, you know, where it was Mayberry RFD, that's basically how big the town I was in, calls and says, you know, your dad had a safe deposit box. I said, well, according to this will, I'm not on it. And they go, well, no, you need to come down. Oh, so I go down there reluctantly and uh, pound a shot down. I'll go down there and give them a piece. I don't know why I was even mean to these folks. I can't even tell you. Just anger. And I get this safe deposit box, and there's another will. It supersedes that one, and it gives everything to me and my sister. So it wasn't much. So we get back here. We take care. Right? No, I'm going through this, and my mom gets diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, stage four. Can, yeah, And I'm still on the fire department. I'm still getting hurt. Not every month, but I have horrible, horrible allergies. I did. And um, I blew out my eardrum scuba diving. <laughs> it's just one thing after the other. It's a, it's a really it's a domino effect, and before I know it, I'm hooked on that stuff, and uh, it, it may have been a year. No, nah, it wasn't a year. It was four or five years, probably. And hooked on Demerol? No, or, just painkillers. Oh, just pain ge- anything. Okay. Pain, hydrocodone, oxycodone. I I don't know how the fentanyl didn't cross my ways. I just don't know that. I don't, I don't think it was available then. I, maybe I don't know. I just, it was more of an anesthesia. That maybe yeah. I I don't know. Thank God because yeah, I, you're a blue collar. You you didn't yeah. have the resources to. Yeah. So, you were not Michael Jackson. No 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 no. So no. So I uh, and it was one thing after the other. Then my finances went to sh- with the shit. Um, I had to file bankruptcy. That added on to all this stuff. I mean, it was over about seven eight years, and I. And I was self-medicating. Um, then it was started to become an issue. Uh, I noticed myself not being able to control the amount I drank when I went out. Um, people were starting to say stuff. Hey, uh, and these are firemen. Come on, these guys. Hey, man, maybe you ought to settle down a little bit or slow down. And, you know, then I started to isolate, which is really bad. And then at that time, this is about 20 years ago. At that time, I could keep alcohol in my house. I had alcohol in my house. I don't know, over the course of two, three years, it started to go away. because Not because I couldn't control myself. It's because the family didn't want me hitting it. Um, they didn't want it, you know, out of sight, out of mind, which is not true. Because if I want to drink, I'm going to drink. I'm a grown-ass man. Mm-hmm. And I could go get it wherever. And I did. And, you know, then then life's hitting you, and then you're starting to deal with retirement. 
And uh, that's a big, big step for us guys, you know, and I described it in the, my article and I tried to be as B shifter ish as I could uh, about retirement. And I, well, I summed it up as this is one day you are and the next day you aren't. You're cleaning out your locker and you're taking your, your uh, uniforms out and you're going, wow, I'm not going to wear these anymore. And some guys transition into that very well. Some guys, you never hear about them again. <laughs> Whatever happened to so-and-so? Oh, he moved to Alaska. Oh, okay. Some guys do. I was one that didn't. And it affected me not because it was who I was, my, but it just because my purpose kind of went to, I don't know. I can't explain that. Guys out there will understand, guys and girls. And, you know, then you were supposed to have a happy retirement. and. I thought um, as as all this stuff, I started playing this stuff off. I got I got into retirement, and I go, and I'm I'm I know I got an issue. I, I was very confident that that I had an issue, and it was starting to affect me mentally and physically now. And you know, I was getting sick a lot. Um, yeah, not with the COVID mm-hmm. flu. Sinus infections. Uh, every every there's another surgery and there's another pain thing. I go in for sinus surgery. Yeah, yeah, blah blah. And I remember getting allergy shots. I had to get shots in the interior septum. That's paramedic Ugh. of my nose. That's like the taint for your face. Yes, <laughs> right, 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 right. So he would spread my nostril and go up there with a little needle and give me. That's how bad it was. And finally, he said, after about a year of that, he says, you're, that's too much. And we're going to um, go ahead and surgery. Oh, shit. So, you know, get put under. I got to put under for that. And another more pain management. This is, like I said, this is over 15 years probably this happened. And, uh, but I'm starting to, um, I'm starting to feel it physically. And was it in retirement that you started hiding your drinking or feeling ashamed of your drinking? No, no, no. No, no, no. I was hiding it well before that. Okay. I was well before that. Because you go out with the family. I'll give you an example, and maybe some guys can relate to this or girls, whoever's listening, whoever listens to this. I'd go to Manuel's, very common, popular restaurant here. And I was allowed to have a couple beers by them at dinner. Allowed, which, yeah, I know, doesn't make any sense. But that's how bad it was, okay? I wasn't doing anything physically to the family. I wasn't, well, you know, the bills are in arrears. I'm just, I'm going to shit is what's happening slowly. That's a slow, agonizing death. So I go, oh, good, I can drink here, have a beer. So what I do is have a beer, order a Corona with dinner, zip off to the bathroom, like here, down the hall, well, guess what? It's right next to the bar. Give me a couple shots of Jack. Quack, quack. Knock the Jack down. Now I'm going to smell a booze, right? But I'm drinking beer, so they won't know. Ha, 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 ha. Mm. It's on them, right? <laughs> That's what I was doing. And, um, you know, I was I was hiding it. I had to hide it from in the garage. I put it in the lawnmower bag because I knew the wife wouldn't look. I got caught so many times I don't even know. And it wasn't what it was doing to me physically it was what it was doing to me i wasn't me i was constantly walking around the next day saying hmm 
okay, I got hammered last night. I'm not going to do that today. And I would write meant it. And I'd get up, and by about noon, I'd say, I better go get one. I'm just going to have one. Off I go. And I said, ah, dang it. Well, anyway, so in retirement, I, I was I had some anger issues, like I said. And I was mad at the world. Poor me is what I was doing. My mom, my dad, the thing, the that, the bankruptcies, all this stuff was piled up on me. And I said, you know what? Uh, in, I'm going to take care of some of this stuff when I retire. But nobody, nobody is going to tell me how to drink. Nobody. I'm going to show them I'm going to drink my way. And I had plans to go to the cruises, you know, fishing, all this stuff. I had these plans. <coughs> and uh, big plans. And uh, I was going to drink only on Tuesdays and Fridays. And uh, that was I meant that until somebody bought me a retirement trip to Mexico, <laughs> a fishing trip, and that lasted a week. And I was off again. And I'd stop for a little bit and back on it. And this, but, I, but the lack of control was out of the, gone. I couldn't control it anymore. And I didn't want to give that up. My, that's our problem is the lack of control. And we think that we can. And next thing you know, you're on your ass. And you're going, how did that happen? Well, next time I go out, I won't do this and I won't do that. I'll eat first. I'll have a taco. I'll have a burrito. I'll eat an Egg McMuffin, whatever, thinking that that's going to, I don't know, some kind of remedy. And for me, it was it was bad, bad, bad. And it's getting worse, worse, worse. So, The, the good time goes bad pretty quick. Oh, yeah. yeah. There was no more good times yeah. with me. There's no more good times. Um, the good times, the days when we used to go to – Union meetings and watch Mark Godfrey and Ron Jacomer get after it. Those days were gone. Um, those days were absolutely gone because I couldn't drink open. I got, I went to a retirement party and I don't know what year it was. It was probably in 2008, maybe a couple of years before I retired. And, uh, I, I was drinking coffee like I am now and somebody called the um, what's what's it called? I, I know the name of it. Help the people. Um, Ron Tapscott. That oh, EPA. EPA. Somebody called employee assistance on me and said that I was slamming down shots at the bar. I was not doing that, but the words obviously been out there that I had a drinking problem and I wasn't going to admit it. So now I'm really pissed. Really mad. Now I, now I can't go anywhere and drink. I can't go into public with, with the firemen, so I didn't go with them. I'll go by myself because I don't want to be called out. And uh, so that's the way I was. And, and even in uh, retirement, well, for a little bit anyway, I was like that. And it was just getting worse and worse. Yeah. And how often were you driving? Every day. Every day. Yeah. Intoxicated. Uh, yeah. Probably. And then uh, what what happened with the Ready? accident? Yeah. Okay. So I uh, um, it was I was nine months into retirement, and I wasn't doing well, and uh, so I got a mixture. I, I thought we think people like me we think we're chemists, and we're going to get this mixture correctly, and we're going to like I was telling you about the food, you know, or maybe I'll smoke a couple of dubs. And I'll mix that with this, and that'll be it. 
that'll be the one. We're always looking for the one, you see. And that one high, that, ah, that one, that I had in the emergency room that day. I didn't know this. I do now. I didn't know this, but that's what I was looking for. Because that that was the next level, brother. Let me tell you, that Demerol, it took that pain away, but it also took something else away. It took my mind away. And it was awesome. It was. I'm not going to lie. It was awesome. I was looking for that. I didn't know this, but I, you know, I, I hit a little bit of gold, and I was. That was my constant quest is to find that level that I was at. So nine months into retirement, I had that mixture that I'd taken before, and I thought, you know what, I, you know, I'll do this. Well, I got behind the wheel, and something the mixture wasn't correct. Um, I nodded out, and I hit the median uh, on freeway. I was in rush hour traffic. And I hit the median a couple times, and there was a dude broke down and, on his motorcycle, and I hit him. Um, fortunately for everybody, I didn't kill him, but I hurt him severely. And uh, that day was it for me. Um, I had it's. I just I was trying to pull it up on my email. I just got something from a uh, the people that are dealing with more firemen and cops. Proven die of suicides right now Mm -hmm. than in the line of duty, especially what's going on with the police officers. Another one just killed himself the other day. Two Capitol police officers killed themselves after that deal um, for whatever reason. Uh, I I know because I was there mentally. And uh, that day I was was in a fog alcoholically. Um, I, I thought there's no way I'm coming out of this one. I got out of that attic. But I ain't coming out of this one. There's just no way I'm getting out of it. And so I just didn't have the courage at that time to make the next step. To I, I wasn't going to hang myself. It's not too many of those. I wasn't going to shoot myself. It's not too much of that. Me, personally. Uh, so the best way to go would maybe OD. You know, that's kind of a chicken shit way out, but at least it's not this or hanging. Um, problem is I kept waking up. And it kept having to deal with what I'd done. And then the number one thing that was bothering me was the how was I ever going to face my colleagues, my brothers and sisters in the fires? How was I ever going to do that again? How was I going to walk through that shame and guilt and face these guys man to man and tell them that I'm a piece of shit? Sorry. Uh-huh. I, I, that's what you are. You're a drunk driver. And we, how many do we go on of those? And, uh, I couldn't bear that anymore. Couldn't bear it. And uh, so for about a week, I was in and out of consciousness by my own hand, um, drinking and taking benzos. (laughs) And uh, my family had had enough. I don't remember that week too much. Um, In and out of consciousness, go to pass out, get up, hit it again, pass out. It was just a – I was on the way out, guys. There's no doubt about it. Um, that attic, going through that attic would have been in seven seconds. This one's going to be 17, 20 years, maybe. It's, it's the same thing. I'm going quick or I'm going fa- or slow. So um, my family had enough. They somehow, I don't know how, they coaxed me into going to a, a residential treatment center for 30 days. Um that a bunch of firemen 
had already been to that I had no idea existed. I didn't even know this was an issue. I thought I was the only one. Mm-hmm. So I reluctantly I went. I, I had no fight in me. I wasn't the guy in that attic jumping. I didn't care. In fact, probably if that happened during that day, that week, I'd have probably just stayed in that attic. I gonna, you know, my wife would have been taken care of, and blah blah blah, you know. So anyway, I go to treatment, and uh, I, I was not. <laughs> I was a horrible patient when I fell on that roof. I was even worse detoxing. Um, I don't even know how that why they put up with me, and uh, probably three four days into it, um, they called me out. Today, I wouldn't. I wasn't participating in anything. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. It was horrible, horrible, horrible. And uh, I said, uh, "We got a problem with your insurance." And I go, "Okay, what does that mean?" Well, your insurance is only going to pay three thousand because you didn't go through IOP and the little buzzwords. Okay, what does that mean to me? Well, if you stay the full thirty days, it's going to be a little bit more. I go, "How much is a little bit more?" I go twelve thousand five hundred. I said, "Adios, mm-hmm. see ya." I, I I was mad. First of all, why is this even? It costs that much to be in a freaking residential treatment center for alcohol and drugs. It's just stupid. And the, my counselor at the time, she only know me a couple of days. Started crying. Just please. She knew I was going to get on my horse and giddy on up. I was on my way, and uh, she says, "Please, please, please, don't go." And I said, "No." I'm not going through this crap. I was fighting it hard, man. And uh, she says, well, I got something to tell you. So we started walking. She goes, please come to my office. All right. And I'm, in, you know, I'm being like towed by a rope here. You know, this I'm not going, okay, sure. I'm not happy. So we go up to her office. She says, well, we made a little phone call. I go, you made a phone call? Who the hell would you call? My wife, my sister, my brother-in-law. You know, most of the firemen in my inner circle know what happened. Why are you calling them? And who did you call? And she said, well, we called your buddies over at the uh, local 493. And I said, and I blew. I said, you what? And I, she told me again. I said, you, first of all, you violated my rights. You didn't tell me that. That pissed me off. And she was, no, no, no. And I said, I'm really out of here now. I'm really mad. And now I'm mad at you. And she, I go, all right. I started to kind of settle down a little bit. She goes, I go, what'd they say? Now remember, I'm dealing with the shame and the guilt of what I did. Remember that. That was huge for me, for any fireman in that situation, anybody. And I go, what'd they say? She goes, they said, send us the bill. And I go, what? And he, I said, if you lie to me and I find out that you had to coax them or, you know, beg and plead, I'm going to kick your ass. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she goes, that's a nice lady. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, man, you yeah. got a problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she no, needed she... a paddle with some holes in it. Yeah, <laughs> with nails in that some bitch. 2,000 degrees. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I, like I said, I didn't take the news very well, but something happened to me when I heard I made her tell me about three, four times. And finally it hit me, and I couldn't believe that they did that. I couldn't believe it. I was, I just couldn't believe it. I, I was in awe. I don't know what the, there's no words to explain what I was feeling at that time. All I know is it took something out of me 
It pulled it right out, and I fell out. That's what I know. And I'm not a religious guy. I'm telling you, something came over me in that doorway, and I fell to my knees, and I asked for help. First time in my life, probably, I guess I did that. So they had a little program over there, and uh, they asked me to buy into it. I had no choice. <laughs> uh, I was here to go there. I said, well, at least it's worth looking into. So I did. I looked into it, and uh, I'm still looking into it. Uh, nine, my That day was February 7, 2012. And I haven't had a drink or a pill since. And uh, anyway, but that wasn't it. That wasn't all. I had to go. I had a detox. That was horrible. Um, I made friends with everybody in there, obviously. I started eating again. I started feeling pretty good. 30-day mark. Um, I get. I graduate. And uh, I'm feeling pretty good, actually. Better than I had in a long, long time. And, and, and the obsession to drink... I don't know what I, how I can explain it to you, was removed out of me. Um, I'm not saying I don't think about it, but the obsession, that was a big deal. And uh, so I started going to what, doing what they said. But my legal issues started, you know, they're, they're out there, and this is pre-COVID, so they're trying to slam me down and, and do everything. Else. Anyway, <clears throat> seven, eight months later, and I still haven't drank, and they, my lawyers told me to my face, um, they said, you'll, you'll re-offend, and uh, I, you'll go out and get another DUI or something. You'll do something. You'll have a weapons. Was that your first DUI? Yes. Got caught. Oh. Yeah. And, it, and so I said, well, what if I don't? And, and then, I, then my training, <laughs> falling through that attic, surfaced again. If I can make it out of that, then maybe I can make it out of this. And it's weird, but I kind of associated that. So I said, uh, okay, what if I don't? Yeah, everybody does. So the judge told me this when I, when he released me to my own recognizance, OR it's called. I said, no uh, casinos, bars, nightclubs, or weapons. And that's a tough deal. To So the casinos and the bars and nightclubs are dance halls, he said. I said, okay, I can handle that. And then the weapons, because I have weapons. And uh, I said, well, shit, what am I going to do about it? So I gave them all away. And there was some slip-ups in there where I have, you know, wanted to give my son a weapon, and it wasn't working correctly, so I'm going to take it down to the gunsmith. And harmless, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what if I get pulled over for something stupid like a broken taillight, and I got a weapon, boom, I'm done. So I, I have to be vigilant of that. I did then, and uh, I, I didn't do it. and. So in November, uh, actually remember, November 3rd, 2012, so I'm, I'm sober about, clean and sober about nine months. Is that nine months? Nine and two? Yeah, nine months. They came at me with the first plea, and it was uh, seven and a half years. And uh, finding out what I know about stuff, seven and a half years means I have to go to a closed custody yard because it's over five. Well, people that knew me, his dad, one of them, we're calling now. Oh, by the way, the, the the outpouring of love and support that I got from the fire department is second to none. I can't believe it. I can't believe it to this day. It still it still gets me emotional. They're saying that's bullshit that you're getting this kind of time 
for a first offense and the kind of guy that you are. I go, yeah, but what kind of guy I am? Freaking drunk driver. You know, and I did it. 100% responsible for it. So I, I switched lawyers reluctantly. And the other lawyer came in and got pissed and said that they didn't do their job. Well, I don't, I'm not a lawyer and I don't know what their job is. So I let them do that stuff. Plus, I was in no condition to fight because I'm guilty mm-hmm. of said crime. So blah, blah, blah. They work stuff out. Um, it goes on for another two and a half years. Um, I have, still haven't drank. And finally, they come at me with the final plea was 1.75 to 3.75 years in the Department of Corrections, which is doable for me after what I've been through and what I've done. Because remember, I've, two and a half years, I'm just clean and sober. I'm doing what they say to do, and I'm feeling 100% better, and I'm fully 100% accountable for my actions. So I'm okay with that. Well, there's a loophole in the law, but you don't know about it, I don't know about The judge, once I sign this plea, normally they take you into custody and you await sentencing. That's how it works, all over, okay? Well, um, th- they didn't, I don't know, that day. They said I could stay out to get my affairs in order. So I did, and I'm getting my affairs, getting my titles and card. I know I'm going to prison, all right? I'm okay with it. Well, that loophole means that the plea isn't binding if you don't go into custody. So, so they come in and another some other guy pulls that plea and they come at, at me with five. And there's nothing I can do about it. So I accepted it. It's not a plea anymore. It's a stipulated plea, it's called. And I get sentenced to the Department of Corrections for five years. And if they told me if you be good, you can get out four and a quarter because you do 85% of your time. So I accepted that. I said, I'm going to go do it. And uh, unbelievable what happened after that. Um, so I go to the Department of Corrections. I was a little concerned because as a firefighter, part of the system, going into regular population, a little bit. But I said, ah, screw it. I went through an attic. What the hell else can they throw at me? <laughs> and, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, really. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I've been married 30 years. So what <laughs> the hell? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, 38 actually. And so I, I accepted that and I went in with that attitude. I'm going to go in and, and, and try to do what a lot of people don't. And, uh, I made friends in there right off the bat with everybody. Um, there's a lot of people in there that don't have anything. All of a sudden, out of the blue, in there a couple months, I started getting letters. His dad's one of them. Okay. All right. So we pen pal each other. It was cool. Fire chief, why is he? And he's been retired uh, eight years at the time. But he was willing to go to court to testify on my behalf. I, I, I found this out later. So we're talking. And all of a sudden, the, the Department of Corrections, they only allow you to have 20 visitors. Not at a time. Over total. And uh, it's called a 20 list. And, you know, you, most people have five, six, seven people on it. Mine filled up in a year. I'm going, holy crap. Then I ended up having to take people that were requiring. Remember, they're not going to Disneyland. They're going to freaking prison. I had to take people off the list, put them into ready reserve, and put them into ready reserve. DOC let me do that. I think in total I had 30 at one time that I was moving back and forth. (laughs) 
Now it's a couple hours from here, too, right? Yeah, it's Tucson. Tucson, yeah. Arizona, yeah. His dad made the trip down there probably, I don't know, half a dozen times when I was down in Tucson Complex. And I, I reclassed. They, they made a mistake in my classification. Anyway, they sent me to a medium custody yard where there's people doing life. And a minimum custody guy isn't supposed to be on it because, you know, those lifers have nothing to lose. So... I, re- I did. I was good, and I was there seven, six and a half, seven months, and they, I reclassed because of my behavior to a minimum custody yard where you have to go to work at work camp. So I did landscaping um, down there, and I worked for two different companies. I have no uh, complaints about that. Uh, it was a good, honest day's work. We made fifty cents an hour, so thirty-six bucks every state pay every two weeks. <laughs> um, but. I don't know what happened, and I can't explain it to you. It's called money on your books, and you're allowed to have as much money on there as you want, but you can only spend a hundred of it a week of your money, and you can buy top ramen soups and coffee and stuff like that, commissary. And mine was always full, so people were running in. Hey, put twenty dollars on his books. What the hell? Why? And uh, that kind of mirror. Then all of a sudden. Um, one day I go into visitation, they don't tell you who's coming. I go in there and there's his dad. Alan Brunacini sitting in visitation. Drove all the way to Tucson. I go, what the hell? Hey. So we talk and it was like we are now. And next time he came down, my wife and a, a dear friend of mine, a fireman also, they were there and they didn't know Chief Brunacini was there. I walked in to see him. So we all sat together and just. And then, he, then it was cool because I got transferred to Phoenix for good behavior. And um, my son, who's a firefighter now, he got to meet all these guys that I talked about. And they all came and visited. Some days they, we had to watch visitation because it was like being at the firehouse. We were laughing and joking. and <laughs> It was, just was. It, we had to, right? Yeah. 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 Well, it's, you think about it, where you were, it seemed like a, a, a bucket full of bee shifters. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll tell you the truth. DOC did not know it was how to handle me. Now, remember, I earned every bit of it by my behavior. I got up, I went to work in that particular yard. I was a cook. And I went to work. I did a job, my job, and I didn't get in trouble. I was studying. I, I was going to school um, on a scholarship through Rio Salado for the incarcerated reentry. It's called, and other people were pitching in, helping. It was it was um, unbelievable. And uh, anyway, and then on the weekends I'd have visitation, and there was sometimes I'd have six different visitors over a weekend. And then, well, anyway, then in, in 2017, right, yeah, uh, Alan Brunacini passed away. And I wasn't watching TV. I was doing something, uh, just work, work, book work. And the other inmates came and told me because they knew I was fired. They said, hey, did you know this guy? And I, oh, crap. And, uh, yeah, I knew him. And, you know, he's that guy that comes visit me. Really? And they were, you know, they were really concerned about it. And I go, ah, sad. Dang it. Well, me and him had been visiting and stuff, Alan. And, uh, you know, I didn't know if his family knew he was coming down there. Why would I? I didn't ever ask him that. It's not something I, you know, hey, does your family know this? <laughs> you know, and, and 
So I called my sister and I said, you know, I'm going to get one of the inmates. There's guys in there that can draw cards. They you got the basic ones you can buy a, from a commissary. Yeah. I wanted an inmate to write a nice card. Draw one. They can do. They, these guys are so gifted. And uh, so I had this guy, and I said, well, I'll wait a couple days, and then I'll send one to Mrs. Bernstein, you know, on the down low. So I, I waited a couple days. I called my sister back, and she goes, uh, yeah, uh, you're not going to believe this. And I go, believe what? She goes, uh, they know, by the way. <laughs> and I go, they do? Are they cool with it? I mean, why would I not ask that? I don't know. And you're not going to believe this. And you haven't heard? And I go, come on, man. The only time I talk to anybody is I got phone privileges and I can have as many minutes because I earned that. But I only call once a night. How would I know this? Well, the Brunacinis had they had a big memorial set up for Alan Brunacini at the Dodge Theater. It's mm-hmm. not that anymore. Is What is it? Comerica. Theater. Comerica, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We had a big thing. And it was all over the news. And uh, they had asked DOC to let me out, not free, under guard, to go speak at this thing. And I'm listening to this on the phone, and I'm going, bullshit. No way. She goes, no, really, you can't. I go, okay. Well, the two guards that do that kind of detail, it's overtime for them. They said, yeah, we'll go with you. We'll take you. We'll be cool. I said, it'd probably be food there, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> food and probably booze for the guards. Yeah, yeah, whatever. With knockout drops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'd be doing this podcast from yeah, Mexico. Mexico, right, yeah. Yeah, and I'd have a blurry face. And, and, uh, and I'd change voice. I don't care. I'd have a big wig on. Yeah, yeah. Room. <laughs> and playing Jimmy Buffett songs and that. So I was I'm on the phone in... And I, I, I had to set it down. I couldn't believe it that that had happened. Me, the guy that had done all this, I'm in prison, and I'm this. I'm being asked what a, what an unbelievable, overwhelming. I mean, I was crying on the phone in front of inmates. Come on, man, I'm a tough guy. And so I, I said, all right. And so hang on. Well, anyway, they denied it. DOC denied it. That's just the way it is. And this is what they told me. The reason why they said number one, he's not your immediate family. They got me there. Remember, I didn't have a dad. If they'd have let me explain that Alan Brunacini was as close to my dad as anybody's ever been, and you know what I mean, let me have a little, or if we could have called maybe the governor or something. And number two was the amount of people would have been a security threat. I would have had to been cuffed up. Like I'm gonna. That that was what I that was what I got. Knockout drops. Yeah, knockout. Right. Like we're gonna do that. So, so it was, but. Now, remember, the guards seen all this, hear it all. They know what's up. When these guys came down, they treated you guys well, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah well, mm-hmm. what happened is, now remember, Alan, so he's deceased. So I take him off the list and put him on. So here he comes. So I, I, I we kept on going. And uh, they, were, they were in shock because it didn't happen in there. This is a house. This is bad area. And this is kind of stuff that's happening. And they didn't mistreat you guys at all, ever, did they? No, they couldn't have been nicer. Yeah. And you wrote a letter that was read at the at the service. Yep. That yeah. was a that was a letter I wrote to Mrs. Brunacini, not knowing full well that 
well, I kind of sort of did that, that she knew and they knew kind of, yeah, I did. I, 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 I don't recall exactly what it said, but it, it sticks with me because when it was read, calling him a good dude. Yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah. yeah. What yeah. else? Yeah. I mean, good dude. You know, a good dude. Well, <laughs> yeah. if it had not been for him and, and his, and his commitment to fire, literally to firefighter safety. And that's not just wearing turnouts. That's everything. You know, if, if he was still alive and still running the, the fire department, I know for a fact that I'd be right there next to him having weekly meetings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I know this. And he'd be put, he'd send me out after it. Cause <clears throat> on, on what's is sad, we have an issue with substance abuse in the fire service. We just do. And, you know, we've lost, I don't know, 18 guys over with suicide. Um, as we speak, there's a couple I know I'm, I'm trying to help reach out to a guy that lost his job over this. Um, and one probably heading down the same path I am. And so but, you went to school uh, while, while you were in, in jail. And yeah. then um, let's talk about what you're doing right now, how, how you're helping people and, and how did that well about after it's get out. Um, see uh, f- firefighters a- as a whole, are very difficult to work with. Bad patients. Bad patients. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, every client. Well, yeah. there were captains that we would call the sexual intellectual. Yeah, sexual. And they said, why do you call Captain yeah. that? Well, because he knows every mm-hmm. fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's all of us, they're, right? They're, <laughs> they're very, very, very difficult to approach. And uh, I understand it because I was that guy. Um, I thinking I was probably worse than any of them. And so, based on that, I know this because I was there, that firefighters, and I'm ta- I don't care what your what sex it is, female or male, I don't care, are, are not going to give up stuff about what they're doing because they it's too hard of a hit on their pride and their ego. And I understand that more than anybody. So, as an approach... When I approach a, a guy or a girl that's suffering from this thing, I can look them because they know me, and I can look them right in the eye and say, I'm here. I went through it, and this is what I did. They can't deny that. <laughs> they can't say, well, you're full of shit. You don't know what I'm going through. I said, <laughs> really? Uh, tell me why I don't. What don't I know about what you're going through right now that you could tell me? I'm not the alpha and the omega here. I'm just saying I walked in their shoes. So that's what I do. I, I try to make the approach on every single guy. I'm, I'm working with uh, the same union that that paid for my uh, treatment. My payback, I'll never be able to pay them back, but my payback to them is to be available at any time. So it's re, we got retirees, members, retiree services. They reach out to me here and there, and I, I got to do what they ask me to do. And if it's this guy or that girl or them or whatever, I, or kids or, of the, you know, kids, I go and make my approach and see what's up. Some some have recovered, which is neat to see. And uh, I mean, some one guy in particular, he's um, he's doing the deal and, and uh, 
although he lost his job, sad, 14 years, and, and uh, um, put the fire chief of that department in a horrible situation, to, that he had to make that call. I got to let you go, bro. You know, I, and so we're he's doing the deal. I've the fire chief offered to take us to dinner, me and this guy, and and the guy's a little reluctant. Obviously, I said, "Listen, bro, you can't hold it out on them. He's had to do a had a job to do, and you put him in a horrible, horrible position because of your actions." Oh, okay. <laughs> it's tough when we put it back on us that. And uh, so that that maybe that'll pan out here, and maybe there'll be a relationship like I had with his dad. When, I don't know. When you look at the the substance abuse with firefighters and cops, hmm. responders, how military, how, how is that different with, with what you you look see? You know, the normal civilian, and then the behavior that that we might have. Okay, it long and the short of it is, not everybody's a tough guy or girl. Not everybody is. I'm telling you, there's firemen out there that I know that I've been around that could go to a drowning every single shift and never even bother them. Just, oh well. And they go well piped the next day. It doesn't bother. But there's those that are like me that after years and years and years of doing this, it and you know something works. So you go and you self-medicate to to drown out that, to take care of this, and it works for a minute. It really does. And then it quits working and it turns on you and it's worse. When it comes back on you, it's worse than it than actually sitting there and dealing with it. Um, you know, I, I've been retired 10 years. I still have dreams of those crappy calls. Driving around, um, you know, with your family and you go by an intersection, you go, oh, I remember a wreck I had. And why that pops into my head, I don't know. But I've learned to deal with it differently now. Um, I just do. I just kind of, okay, that happened. And and instead of dwelling on it and saying what could I, and, and I but I have all that. And I, I was diagnosed with severe chronic PTSD in 2013. I didn't go in there asking for that. I didn't want that diagnosis. I went to a guy... Uh, shrink professional help. I go to professional help, and I told him, it was right like I'm sitting here. Said if you diagnose me with that, and if you give me anything that's mind altering, anything, I'll come hunt you down, because we're not going down that road. And he goes, no, no, no. We're going to document. We're going to get it. You know. And I said, all right. But you have to be honest with those guys. Um, last summer. For instance, last summer, I was I had some bees that decided they wanted to move into my house. And they were out by this column, and there was some um, cat claw vine impeding my access to destroy them. And I was going to use a technique in the fire department. I was going to spray them with soapy water. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was my goal. So, But in order to gain access, I had to get rid of that cat claw. So I bought a new pair of electric uh, hedge trimmers. And it's maiden voyage, right? So I go, all right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to cut a little bit of this cat claw away and gain access to these bees. Hopefully, they don't sting me or nothing. And that was I was doing good. And I'm up there. But the problem is, see, I wasn't practicing safety. Like I, I didn't have gloves on. Oh wait, no, I did. I had gloves on. And 
I was swinging it like a sword. And I hit the stucco, and it bounced, and it, I still got the scars there, and it just about cut the, I had gloves on, just about cut the tips off these fingers. Ooh. And it hurt like hell, right? So I looked down, and I pulled the glove off, and ah, dang it. And I, I direct pressure all the paramedic stuff. And I said, I'll be all right. Let me just put a Band-Aid on it. I'll be fine. <laughs> and I open up this one. I go, oh, that's going to need stitches. I'm just looking. It was a bulge and a big flap. I go, oh, no. So off to the urgent care I go. As I'm driving there, the thought pops in my head. Hmm, perhaps I can get some pain management stuff. Perhaps. The other thought comes in, prison, the the feeling, no. All right, let's see how tough you are. I get down there, guy's suturing up my hand. It's really no big deal. You know, he gave me some, not like, local. Yeah. Local. Yeah. And so we're getting ready. He goes, okay, I took 11 stitches, by the way. So five in one and six in the other. So I did a, <laughs> yeah, I did a yeah. number on it. <laughs> that's so, a laceration. Yeah, yeah, that's a laceration. So he goes, uh, all right, so here's your follow-up, you know, keep it clean, all that stuff they always tell you, which I never do anything. And he goes, and I've taken the liberty, this is exactly what he said to me, I've taken the liberty to give you five Percocets. And I I looked, I go, I never asked. I didn't squawk. I didn't go, I didn't snivel. I didn't do anything while I was there. You understand? I just let him do his thing, right? And I go, you took the liberty? Yeah, well that you know when the light of king wears off, you're gonna it's gonna be throbbing, and I go, oh, he's right, pain, pain. What? Yeah, I says, out of nowhere, somewhere we work in this program. I work. Thank you, doc, but no thanks. I'm an alcoholic, and I won't take him as directed. And he had the script. It's <laughs> looking at me. <laughs> Let me get this right. I'm offering you five perks that was he's allowed by state law. And you don't want them. That is correct. I don't. I won't take them as directed. I'll take all five right now. He goes, you can't do that. I go, they don't give them to me. I don't want them. And he goes, well, how about something else? And I go, like what something else? And he goes, well, you want some ibuprofen? I go, yeah, I'll do that. He goes, okay. Really? I go, yeah, really. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, okay, I'll be fine. And uh, so he called me like 12 hours later. How are you doing? I go, fine. And he goes, does that thing throbbing? I go, ah, a little bit. But, you know, I, I got burned in an attic. I'm all right. I'm all right. And and I took a couple of eye and I was fine. But that could have been it again for me. Yep. So I have to be vigilant because that's how it comes at us, you see. That's legitimate injury. The doc's even buying in on unbeknownst to him. He doesn't know me. I was honest with the doc, which I we never are. And told him that I'm an alcoholic and I won't take him as directed. That changed his, and he goes, you know, I can respect that. Okay. So I dodged another one. It's happened a couple times in sobriety where I've been offered for injuries, and I've turned them down. I'm not saying, oh, hey, Jeffy, I have to be vigilant. And the last thing on that, being vigilant, is weapons. See, I, I can't, I'm a convicted felon. I can't have weapons. It's called prohibitive possessor. Okay, what does that mean? You can't have a gun. End of story. Unless you get your gun rights back. Okay? So when I drive with people that I don't know, it's very, not too often, but some of my family members have them. 
And I now, if I'm in their car, I'm okay. But if I'm driving their vehicle for whatever reason, I just did it the other day. I got to ask them, "Hey, you got any guns in there?" Oh, Dad, you're cool. You've been sober nine and a half years. I understand you, son. I do. But no, <laughs> here, take the thing out of it. Everything's fine. Driving home, just I said, I'm towing a trailer. Uh, Vinny Conderic said, hey, "Vinny, do you think we need to change the tires on that? I'll buy them." Nah, they're fine. Are you sure? Yeah. How long you had this trailer? Eight years. You ever changed the tires before? Nah, but I towed around all the time. Stupid ass me. I should have <laughs> done it. Just south of Dove Valley, boom, the left tire blows. I mean, blevies. Balloon. Blows the fender out in the freeway. So I pull over. Thank God I had a, enough area. So I got a John Deere Gator in the back. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to change this tire? So I'm figuring out my battle plan. Here he comes. DPS. Rolls on up. Now remember, nine and a half years ago, I'd have probably had something on board. There's for sure. Yeah. I'm up there helping my son move. Nice weather. How you doing, Dad? Blah, blah, blah. I, I'm not doing that. I choose not to. And he gets out. He stands right next to me. I don't have to look at the ground. I don't have to go, shit. I wonder if he can smell it. I don't have to do that anymore if I choose to, right? So he runs the trailer of the plate, or the plate trailer. Oh, Vinny had his stuff up to, because he's checking, obviously, for stolen. I get that. I'm mm -hmm. fine. Gets Comes back out. Doesn't ask me for my driver's license, which was odd. Goes, how can I help you? Huh? And I'm thinking, <laughs> this is not, he goes, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll just, you know, provide you a safe working zone. I said, okay, I'm going to back, I'm going to pull the gator out, change it. He goes, okay, I'll wait here. And I did it, and off he went. Wow. Now, let's go to the flip side of that. I have the gun in there. He decides hmm, to do whatever. My fault, everything's my fault here for not being vigilant. So I have to act like that, and I do that, and I'm okay. So to this day, if you get caught with a weapon or something like that, do you? Two and, you and get, a half. You get, you're just, you just had to go back in. Two Gone. and a half years. Wow. No questions asked. For the rest of your life? No, two and a half. Oh. Okay. Automatic two and a half. No, no, but you, you have to be vigilant like that for the rest Absolutely. of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Just like we do with diabetes taking a shot, I have to be vigilant. Am I going to be all the time? Probably not. And I'll probably make a mistake. I'll probably do that one day. But you know what? I, I don't give him a reason to. If he pulled my driver's license, it's going to come up. You know, and he's got to do his job, and I get it, and I'm okay with that. And but uh, you know, if I make a mistake, I don't know. Maybe a judge will understand that—that that it's not mine. You know, but I have to be vigilant about it unless I get my gun rights back. Mm -hmm. And that's a process. And right now, since my release, I've got my voting rights back, um, and uh, I cast a vote in the last election, and I've helped a couple other guys that are in my same position do the same because the state law says if you only had one felony, you can get your voting rights back. It's a process, but I did it. And I've also got a level one fingerprint clearance card, which um, it, I'm a high school football coach as well. So that allows me by the state to work around kids with this card. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. And the late, la last thing is the gun rights. And I don't know if that'll happen. I don't really care at this point. 
it's I lost the right. It's not anybody's fault but Jeff Griffin's. But to get him back, I've got two out of three. So we'll see. I don't know. Maybe somebody listening here is a lawyer and will know about that yeah. stuff. I don't. <laughs> but we will have Jeff's contact information yeah, in got the my notes contact. here. So, yeah, yeah. well, as we're kind of wrapping up, uh-huh. um, what would you say to somebody who listened to all this? And this has been fantastic. Thanks for sharing oh, so much. Well, I owe it. First of all, I owe it to his dad and his family. There's this debt of gratitude that I, I don't know. There's no words for it. That remember, I was destroyed as a human being and as a man on this planet. I thought my only purpose was to take my own life, mm-hmm. and because of the shame and the guilt. And when I, I fessed up from day one, took the hit, went and did what I had to do. And the miracles, I, there's no other word for it. I mean, I got home from prison on a Monday, September the 18th. My neighbor comes over, who I, I knew, but I didn't know him. You know, we, we didn't hang out. And he says, well, we bought this new motorhome. Me and the wife, we're going to hit the road. Hey, good for you. Okay. That's like the longest conversation I'd had with a guy in 30 years. It was, uh, and you know that, that Dodge pickup? Yeah, yeah. What's it? Yeah. Ah, me and the wife decided we're just going to give it to you. <laughs> Go, wait a minute. <laughs> Why? What? Okay. You, I, I never inquired. I didn't ask it. I, he just said that out of nowhere. Kind of like when they said, we'll pay your bill. It was a 1993 Dodge with 70,000 miles on it. Literally brand new to me. And they go, we think you probably need a truck to go find a job and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Next day, went down to MVD, transferred title. No money. Wanted nothing for it. How do you pay that back? So, you know, I got me a little part-time job because it's tough to get a job as a felon in this day and age because that's what it says. So I work, uh, I'm going to say, can I say it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I work for AutoZone at part-time, um, minimum wage. Actually, I got a raise. I, I make twelve fifteen an hour, and I was making fifty five as a fireman, as a captain. But uh, that's changed, and uh, I'm pretty happy about it. Um, it's right by my house. I pick my grandkids up three, four times a week. School, I'm allowed. Uh, I got that privilege. Uh, my daughter seen the destruction of the old Jeff Griffin, and seen the the redemption, if you will, of the new guy. And she trusts me around her kids. So if anybody's listening to this and you hit a chord and and they're saying, I I have some of those same behaviors. Yeah. What would you say to them? I got an email and my phone number is going to be on there. First of all, know this. I will not, I do not, and I cannot judge anybody by what you, I've heard it all done it, but also, who the hell am I to judge anybody? Okay. I know a way out that's legit. Um, there's several, but I know a way out. And going the other way, you got two choices. If you're exhibiting the behaviors like I had, you got two choices. Happy, joyous, and free, or an alcoholic death. So it's there's, there's no, well, let me get back to you. Um, I, I know guys. We know guys that have died from alcoholism, and it's not fun, and it's not pretty, is it? Oh, it's horrible. It's poison. It's poison. I mean, that's really what it does is it rots you from the inside Rots out. you from the inside, slowly. Yeah. Now, 
I'm not talking, and I, I go to places. I, I'm not that guy. I'm not a reformer. I don't go to uh, alcoholic places or where it serves alcohol. It's like, ah, the, you know, I don't do that. I, I just do this. I go in, and I know that that stuff in me doesn't mix. Okay, if you want to get slopped up, get slopped up. Good for you. You might not be like me. That's I don't care. I really don't. I go, I see people, I go to places where people drink all the time, and I just know that it's not for me. That's it. That's where I leave it. You want to talk? Um, I'll hit some chords with you that normal people that aren't as bad as us will understand. Normal people don't understand alcoholics. There's a difference. There's a difference between a social drinker, which I don't even know exists, and there's a difference between a heavy drinker and an alcoholic. There's a difference. Alcoholic is a sickness. It's a disease. Heavy drinking isn't a disease. It's just heavy drinking. I know guys that are heavy drinkers. They can go out and drink a handle of freaking black velvet and smoke four packs of cigarettes, and they live till they're 90. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay? I, alcohol does not affect them like it does me. Well, if you're a me, I'm all ears. And I'll come to you. I'll go to you. I'll, whatever. Let me Let me tell you. My finances were, this is part of the what I did. My finances were horrible when I got out of prison. Horrible. My wife saved our house. I don't know how. She got one of those, uh, what kind of loans are they? Uh, mod- loan modifications. That saved it, the house. Well, now with the boom in the economy, house has gone. My house appraised at a nice price. So I said, I'm going to try refinance. I don't know why, but I'm going to give it a shot. Four liens on my title. <laughs> it was horrible. No, it was actually comical. Looked like my freaking uh, grad college, uh, 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 what you call it? Uh, what's that called? Transcript? Uh, transcript, yeah. Withdrawal. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I went through the process. took normal, normal people. They do about 30 days. Me, it took uh, about 100 days. To, to And it finally did. So I was able to right the ship a little bit and pay off a place called, I don't know if anybody's heard of this, called the IRS. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Paid them off, paid some other stuff off, got the things, got it all cleared up, get my credit rating back to prove, you know, good, which it's never been, ever, ever, ever has my credit rating been this high. And, I, and, so, and that's what I do is I, I, I'm, I'm different now. Because I, I care about that stuff. Back in the day, I didn't care about it. I just got mad. So if you're out there and you're suffering, there is a way out. I might have an answer. I might not. I ain't going to preach to you. I'm not going to talk about recovery. I'm not going to do anything like that. I, that's not how I operate. When you bring it up, that's then you're ready. But until you're ready, I'm not, I'll just talk. Well, we'll talk about the, the roof. I don't care. Uh, we go to lunch. We, I don't talk about recovery to anybody. I don't know. Somebody asked me, I'll tell them. But I don't care. But, you know, that's it. That's what I do. All right. I'm not a preacher. Just so you know, I'm not a preacher. I have nothing against them, but I'm not that guy. All right? That's it. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming Thank in and you. talking with us. And hopefully we can catch up again soon. See how you're doing. And Absolutely. It's been really nice talking to you today. Thanks for having me. This is a, remember, on February the 7th, 2012, 
I never, ever, ever thought I would be sitting doing stuff like this again. In fact, I should be dead. Glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be asked. All right. God bless you, Jeff Griffin. Well, God bless us in the United States of America. <laughs> there you go. You know, we're going to turn this into a church before we yeah, do. Yeah, all right. We'll yeah. be preaching. And that wraps up this edition of B-Shifter. We want to thank Jeff Griffin for sharing his experience and uh, everything that he went through from the fall through the roof to being incarcerated to bouncing back beautifully. And we wish him the best and hope to have another conversation with him very soon. Hey, if you like this podcast and you haven't done so already, we ask that you subscribe on whatever kind of carrier you have. Also, if you're on Apple, give us a review. That helps out a lot. If you have any comments for us, feel free to email me. My email is in the show notes. Until next time, thanks for listening to B-Shifter. Please be safe. Be safe.